0: If you were in, you know, if you're in English class and someone says something like that, head for the door. And say, I want my money back.
1: Here's the mystery of Thomas Pinchon. Thomas Pinchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras.
0: A screaming comes across the sky.
2: It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now.
1: To the now.
2: Gravity's Rainbow and other inquiries directly related to the
1: today, to the now, to the now. Here's the mystery of Thomas Pritchard. Slow Learners, Episode 2, Covering Gravity's
0: Rainbow, Section 1, Chapters 10 through 13, Inclusive. A man goes into a toilet in this one. So, listener discretion is advised.
2: We open with a rather tricky chapter, the sort of writing that earns Pigeon his rep as a difficult author. We like to think of these chapters almost as a skill check, to use a term lifted from gaming. They're like little mini boss fights that challenge your ability to make sense of what's going on. So, what's going on? Well, Slothrop is being injected with sodium ametol, a sedative used as a truth serum in World War II. The chapter opens with him repeating variations on the phrase, you never did the Kenosha kid, which function almost like prompts to induce a state of hypnosis. Movies like The Manchurian Candidate show off stuff like this. In his half-lucid dream state, Slothrop travels back to the Roseland Ballroom in Massachusetts, where he hung out before the war. Malcolm X is also there. Slothrop drops his prized harmonica down a toilet and ventures in to retrieve it. He fantasizes or turns into a cowboy named Crutchfield, who gets a blowjob from a snake. (coughs) Crutchfield, also called Crouchfield, is taming the western lands with his little pard, an Afro-Scandinavian sidekick. Slothrop wakes up from his altered state. It's Christmas, 1944. Then we're back with Pirate Prentice, who is about to jack off. Why? Because the message he retrieved from the rocket is written in some invisible ink, called cryptosam, that can only be decoded by sperm. Cryptosam is another invention of Laszlo Jomf, the chemist who experimented on infant Tyrone Slothrop. In his masturbatory reverie, Prentice gets very paranoid, bad vibes. He pops his top and reads the message. He's ordered to call back an undercover operative stationed abroad. Then we move to the White Visitation and learn about its history. As an asylum, an antenna was installed to broadcast the ravings of the lunatic inmates in an effort to confuse the Nazis. Now, American forces have taken over the building. Their big project is called Operation Blackwing, a scheme to convince the Nazis that a band of Herero revolutionaries, subjects of former German colonies in southwestern Africa, are storming through Europe. Slothrop's own racial fantasies, i.e. the Roseland Ballroom incident, are used to help illuminate racial problems. Then we meet Brigadier Pudding, a stiff upper-lip Great War veteran and foil to pointsman. Pudding thinks it's a bad idea to meddle with the minds of human subjects. Pointsman doesn't really give a rat's ass. Pudding is a nuisance to Pointsman and must be taken care of. Pointsman's dream is to push Pavlov to his limit, to condition a subject beyond the zero, so that stimuli can produce totally novel, automated responses. Slothrop is key to Pointsman's project, which is to hammer out a master plan of causality. With which he can prove the stone determinacy of everything, every soul.
1: This is the story of a 30 year search by US intelligence agencies to perfect mind control. You no,
0: never did. You could ask kid. You, never did the kid. you never What did the in the name of holy hell is going on in this novel? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So
2: my first question along those lines is Slothrop. We start the section with Slothrop being injected with truth serum, which send him into this fugue state of memories and associations. But like just the spare facts, where is he? Who's injecting him? Is he working for them? Is he being coerced into it? Yada yada yada.
0: So one thing that's cool about Slothrop, I think, is like he's at least initially introduced as being kind of an idiot. Like they're like, "Hey, you're being transferred from Octung to this uh, group Pisces, and they're going to start uh, injecting you with stuff." And he's kind of just like, "Okay." Uh, so yeah, he's he's under the uh, care in quotes of Pisces operatives, which are the uh, psychological warfare group. And they're injecting him with sodium amytal, which at the time was literally used in World War II because it was believed to be a kind of truth serum. Um, but they're not really interested in, like, Slothrop spilling the beans. They kind of want to get deeper into his psychology, I think.
2: Yeah. They're inducing some sort of psychedelic state.
0: Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like you would almost think of it like a trip, like how you think of, like, an acid trip or a mushroom trip where it's this kind of uh, reverie Like a, I don't know, a kind of waking dream where his own memory is being kind of, like, re-encoded in a metaphorical sense.
2: Right. Sense in quotes. Okay, so let's get into what he remembers and what he sees. So we have this weird sort of dream, which is a mix of associations from his memories Mm -hmm. and perhaps, like, information he doesn't necessarily know firsthand, or...
0: Yeah, or stuff that, like, again, like a dream is... Being kind of jumbled and mixed around. I mean, this stuff where he's hanging out at the Roseland Ballroom, which was kind of like a black hangout in, uh, I guess, Boston or Boston suburb at the time, that is meant to be, I guess, part of his true life pre-war. Yes. Um, Slothrop
2: did theoretically go to the Roseland Ballroom and and go to the bathroom where Malcolm X was a—
0: Yeah, and we'll learn that Slothrop is kind of like – I mean, even the fact that he's a white guy named Tyrone, I think, has certain connotations. Like, you don't meet a lot of white people in the world with that name, I don't think. But Slothrop definitely has some sort of association with black America, and we'll learn – what that association is and how it's kind of being exploited later on. But yeah, he's the kind of like white guy who would like hang out at like jazz clubs and he yeah. would play a harmonica, which I believe he refers to as his jive accessory. <laughs> uh, and he drops a harmonica down the toilet and then he kind of like goes on this quest through the toilet. It reminds me of in spotting when the movie Spotting when you and McGregor just like goes into the yes. toilet. And this is the kind of like gross thing, you know? The, I mean, you know, I
2: think we should address the... The fact that Slothrop has a sort of paranoid fantasy of getting gang fucked by a bunch of black dudes. And, and, you know, like his. The terminology used in that section is would be considered pretty offensive nowadays, I think.
0: Yeah, but you have to remember, too, that it's like coming from the perspective of someone who is of, not even Pinchon, but like Slothrop, yeah. who is of that era and whose racial consciousness is very, like, encoded in a pre civil rights way. Yeah. Uh, and again, when he said in the summary. That like uh, you know, Slothrop's kind of ideas about blackness are being are of particular interest to the people in Pisces. Yeah. that's something to keep in mind. Uh, he his kind of like racial consciousness or uh, racist consciousness is is being weaponized Do in you- a way that I don't want to spoil.
2: Right. Do you think there's we can extrapolate this into the '60s and the countercultural movement, just in the sense that we established in the previous episode that Pynchon is writing about the countercultural movement through the World War II era, is this idea of some sort of intelligence agency studying race relations in in someone like Tyrone is is that? Does that have any yeah, resonance I mean, to I you? mean,
0: definitely, like the FBI and groups like that had insurgents within the Black Panthers and groups like that. And if you want to talk about like the larger sort of organization of the 60s counterculture, I think that you have these kind of like Hepcat figures, uh, like Slothrop, these, you know, in quotes, what Norman Mailer called the white Negro figures. Uh, and then you have uh, in the 60s, black power movements, right? And there was a lot of tension in the sense that like, The political and social aims of the black power movement scraped against those of the hippie counterculture when it entered its pure sort of uh, hedonistic neoliberal phase. So maybe there's something like that that's being traced back to this period. I mean, famously, like Eldridge Cleaver, one of the Black Panthers guys, Mm -hmm. did an interview with uh, Timothy Leary where Timothy Leary had to basically be like, yes, LSD is like a white middle class hobby. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: so yeah, I think that I think that there's definitely stuff like that going on. I mean, the type of, you know, again in quotes, hipster that Slothrop is mm-hmm. is very much this kind of like admiration slash fetishization right. of black culture in the pre-war yes. period.
2: Yeah, and he has an explicit fantasy about being fucked by. Black dudes yeah
0: and also a fantasy of you know uh, rooting through shit and piss and toilet paper and right a uh, uses the word dingleberry mm-hmm. you know when you get like a piece of shit in your hair no, your that's well never it happens, happens to me in life It has happened to some <laughs> um, and this is probably like you know one of the only literary novels that I could imagine using the word dingleberry probably. but that's an aside
2: Okay, so let's just rewind for a second before we get to the Roseland Ballroom stuff and the race stuff. We get these weird iterations of the phrase you never did the Kenosha kid. I think perhaps this is might be a red herring sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure if it has a deeper meaning, but... Can you manufacture a deeper meaning for us out of this?
0: No, I don't know. Like I say, I I, I think it's kinda of one of those things like again in the Manchurian candidate where there's like a phrase or a, 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 a procession of, of uh, playing cards or uh, remember the Sex in the City where, like, uh, Charlotte has to touch Kyle McLaughlin's elbow to get him to have an erection because, like, that's what his mom does? Right, it's right. just – I think it's, like, one of these trigger phrases. As far as where it comes from, I mean, there's obviously, like, Western imagery that abounds yes. in this chapter. And later in the book, I think there's a character called the Kenosha Kid or at least some soldier who's mentioned as being from Kenosha. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is the kind of thing when you read a book like this is, like – the things that you want to over-determine the meaning of, you kind of have to just pick and choose for yourself.
2: I, I mean, and just to provide for the for the listener, there is an actual Western, a serialized Western novel or short story that was called The Kenosha Kid. It was written by Forbes Parkhill for, uh, I think, a magazine called Western Rangers. It was in the August 1931 issue. So if Slothrop is... This is 1944. He's sometime in his twenties. Minus 13 years, maybe Slothrop read yeah. this issue of Western Rangers, and um, the White Visitation is using it as a Proustian trigger.
0: Yeah, and like the you know the thing is when he. In, in this reverie when he comes out of the toilet and it becomes this Western sort of fantasy where he's Crutchfield or Crutchfeld, yeah. uh, this is very much a kind of like American Western fantasy, you know, the westward man striking out against yes. the landscape.
2: Well, let's get to that. So okay, sure. So Slothrop turns into Crutchfield in his own fantasy, right? He's embodying Crouchfield or Crutchfield?
0: Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, Crutchfield is, so, yeah. is a
2: guy who basically marauds around the West – Killing and raping Native Americans.
0: Yeah, and having sex with men and women and animals. I think we mentioned he gets a blowjob from a rattlesnake at one point. Yeah. And he has this partner named Huapo. Say it like Hank Hill. Whoppo, Whoppo. Uh, Whappo, W H A P P O. Who's like his little pard?
2: As yes. it's called
0: a term used by Clint Eastwood. One of my favorite films Bronco Billy. Yeah, uh, and
2: he's half black himself. Yeah, he's
0: Afro Scandinavian. Yeah. So Crutchfield, the Crutchfield thing is kind of this like manifest destiny nightmare where mm-hmm. there's this like cowboy with a rattlesnake on his cock, yeah. uh, and this like dream of dominating the West. Yeah, and uh, in the Crutchfield fantasy, it's like he has this dream that everything will be kind of organized into these pure categories. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of a weird, like it's obviously weird, Mm -hmm. but like it's one of those things where I think they're using a dream to do a lot of metaphorical work. Like a lot of stuff that happens in the Crutchfield fantasy I think is actually more evocative of Captain Blasero or Weissman Mm -hmm. and his relationship with uh, Einzian, which we'll talk about later. Uh, So again, I think it's kind of this thing where it's almost like setting up this dense metaphorical dreamlike section that introduces all these ideas that it will then kind of like tease out over the next 600 and so pages
2: yeah and I think if you're connecting the dots just you know if you were in a college English class today I think someone would probably say that this chapter is either a critique or an exploration of like toxic white masculinity in a way I mean
0: if you were in a (laughs) if you're in an English class and someone says something like that head for the door say I want my money back (laughs) yeah Uh, I didn't sign up to get reprogrammed by my frickin' Marxist TA with purple (laughs) hair. Um, What the heck? Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. And the other thing is, like, uh, this book touch. I mean, obviously, one of the big things about World War II that we all know and learn about is, like, the Holocaust and the idea of this world historical genocide. Gravity's Rainbow is always sort of gesturing at the idea of these genocides Mm -hmm. existing in history or in the imagination in a way that predates and almost like predetermines the Holocaust. Yeah. That sounds a little cheap to say that it predetermines it, but in a way where it's like this sense of, uh, totally kind of technical, almost bureaucratic genocide yeah. was being things led up to it. Right? I mean, it it's didn't come out of nowhere.
2: It's reflected multiple times with the Herero genocide is yeah. discussed and you even have a section the who Do- dodo bird yes, genocide yeah. by
0: Franz von der Groove. which yeah. We'll get to later. Groove. Yes. Uh,
2: so Pynchon's obviously interested in how some social st- orders wipe out others and some lose Yeah, way.
0: Yeah, and exactly. And it's like, you know, we talked a bit about like who Slothrop is and how he it does have the sort of uh, background and, you know, if you want to put it this way, the DNA of being like a Elitist oppressor, like maybe this is literally his fantasy. Like this is the all-American fantasy of taming the West, but oh, it's yes. in this sort of like nightmare Cormac McCarthy, yeah, Blood Meridian.
2: Way. I think he thinks of himself as as a hepcat, and perhaps Sodiemammoth Hall is exposing his true, yeah, unconscious fantasies, which are no different than any other, yeah, white, like don't you get guys? it that
0: you're like an elitist white racist, yeah. yeah.
2: Let's talk more about these <laughs> substances. So we have sodium amyotol. Next, we have something called cryptosam. What the heck is that?
0: Cryptosam is another Laszlo-jamf joint. Uh, Laszlo-jamf
2: being the, the Hungarian. Yeah,
0: the chemist who experimented on Tyrone as a boy. And jamf is sort of uh, tied to a number of chemicals. Uh, in fact, we'll probably do an episode just about chemistry in this yeah. book, uh, including Crypto Sam, Emma Polex mm-hmm. Onarine, uh, sign me up, sign me up. Uh, so yeah, he's this kind of uh, chemist who we only know at this point as being someone who experimented on Slothrop, and he has ties with a couple other characters. But the you know his vision of the world isn't quite clear yet. But yeah, Crypto Sam is basically like an invisible ink that you have to jerk off onto, and then the message is revealed. Nice. Yeah.
2: Post not clarity. Okay, so. Pirate Prentice uses CryptoSand to decode a message from a, that was contained in a V2 rocket. Yeah. So are we to believe that someone on the German side is send, is collaborating with the Allied side to send messages?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a curious thing. Like, why is it on the rocket? We do know, like, not to give it away, that, like, the, the person who he's retrieving is kind of, like, involved with rockets in some way. But yeah, I mean the other thing in this chapter 2 or in this section is like he's given a a a a, a picture um of
2: to jack off to to, jack to off use to. as nutting. Yeah, it's a dra- it's a
0: drawing of his former mistress someone named Scorpia Mossmoon mm-hmm. uh and it's like This is a thing that he used to, like, fantasize about. And it's like, well, who's giving me this? How do they know that I have these fantasies? So this is the kind of, like, deep paranoia that the book gets into. Operational paranoia. Operational paranoia where it's like, how you know, uh, I'm jerking off. I'm aroused. But is this being predetermined by someone else? The book really lives in this space where it's constantly getting you. And the characters are explicitly asking, like, why do I have this motivation? Yeah, Who is determining this? Is it being determined for me or is it? Of my own free erotic imagination.
2: Right. Or a little bit of both. Yeah. I Basically, John, I just wanted to ask you explicitly, is the White Visitation a stand-in for MKUltra?
0: I do think that Pinchon is sort of using this notion of secret government mind control when he's describing all the weird things going on in the White Visitation. Now, the curious thing about it that gets f- people thinking spooky, getting all spooked out is, you know, this novel came out in 1973, and MKUltra was not really revealed to the public until a few years after that. In fact, during Watergate, I believe a bunch of documents having to do with MKUltra were destroyed. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be till 75 or 77 that the full kind of breadth of this program, which included testing on people not only throughout Europe, in Asia, but testing on American citizens, often mm. unwillingly, in, in Canada where I come from oh, geez. up in Canada there was a testing at McGill University where I graduated from uh you
2: don't need to brag, John. Yeah, it's sort of the Harvard of Canada. Oh, <laughs>
0: fucking no. Fucking sort of the fucking Harvard of Canada, man. I majored in fucking smokes and did, did Jordan a,
2: Peterson teach
0: there? I wish. I <laughs> fucking wish, man. I could have learned a fucking thing or two.
2: Could have learned twelve things.
0: <laughs> I could have learned the twelve rules for being alive. But anyways, yeah, in short, I think a lot of this stuff with the white visitation, especially the way the book talks about like uh psychoactive drug chemistry. Uh, again, in the same way that we talked about how there's kind of like, you know, hippie characters before the hippies really existed in this book, uh, Pynchon is kind of examining how the, you know, preoccupation with mind control that would predominate in the Cold War that would eventually be revealed in the 70s has its origins in World War II. Right. Not literally in the way he's describing, but it's more telling, I think, that in this book, it's the allies who are doing all this weird shit. Yeah. In r- reality... The, like I said, the Nazis were testing drugs like mescaline to to sort of bend the minds of people in concentration camps. Yeah. So again, the fact that Pintron is showing Allied troops or not troops, but uh, you know Allied organizations doing this is another way that he's kind of like dissolving this moral boundary between the Axis and Allies.
2: I just want to rewind for a second. You you told us that. <clears throat> No one knew about MKUltra when this book was written and came out, so what's the extrapolation to be made from that state? Well,
0: well, people would have obviously known about it, but like it wasn't publicly known. Right. People would have known about it in the sense that like uh, Ken Casey, who was like one of the people who propagated the use of acid in the counterculture, took part in MKUltra. People mm-hmm. would have heard of these experiments. People volunteered sometimes for these yeah. experiments. Some people think maybe Pinchot himself was involved with it. I'm not convinced of that necessarily. Right. I mean... Wh- I maybe was, maybe he wasn't, mm-hmm. until he says it one way or the other. It's anyone's guess. We'll um, let, you, we'll let decide. you decide. But certainly in his previous novel or novella, The Crying of Not 49, The Crying of Lot 49, um lsd mk ultra these kind of government tests were being talked about and that's in the mid 60s that's before like anyone had really publicly gotten onto this so yeah when we say nobody knew about it it means that like it wasn't in the newspaper yeah. there are obviously thousands if not tens of thousands people who knew about it either from actively taking part in it on one side or the other mm-hmm. or by being you know friends with people who did and i have no doubt that Pinchon certainly palled around and rubbed elbows with people who were part of mk ultra
2: yeah Through his work in Boeing, or just...
0: Well, through his work in Boeing, I think, like, uh, in this kind of... Ties back to the last episode, but I feel like he certainly had some sort of guilty conscience about being part of a military industrial complex that was incorporating Nazi rocketry know how. Mm -hmm. But I think that when he left Seattle and kind of ambled into Mexico and into California during the period when he was writing Gravity's Rainbow, I mean, he's described as being kind of part of like a sort of hipster beach scene. Mm you know, the extent to which he was active in this scene or just kind of observing it through the blackened out windows of an apartment is, again, pretty much anyone's guess. But, you know, his friend Richard Farina, some people believe was assassinated by the CIA. Yeah, uh, which, by
2: Cohen-Telpo. Cohen Cohen-Telpo,
0: yeah. So, I mean, and again, I don't know. But, I think
2: that's been mostly disproven.
0: Yeah, but he, you know, Pintram certainly, you know, he... he I, I don't want to say I don't think he's a cool guy but I think that he was a keen observer and I think that he was on the edges of people who were very involved with these yeah. types of things. and
2: maybe not even just a keen observer but someone who's actively interested in encoding hidden truths into work so as to Yeah, to, to work to the about them. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's like Again, when people say that nobody knew about MK Ultra until nineteen seventy seven or whatever, well, Pinchon's writing it in novels that are getting critical acclaim in in, 1960s. in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. So he's certainly tipping you off to this stuff even if he's not, you know, capital T telling you about it. For sure. Every one of the top forty records being played on every radio station in the United States is a communication to the children to take a trip. To cop out, to groove,
1: the psychedelic jackets on the record album have their own hidden symbols and messages, as well as all the lyrics of all the top rock songs, and they all sing the same refrain, it's fun to take a trip, put acid in your vein.
0: So in this section of Gravity's Rainbow, we kind of get into elements of government mind control. The white visitation and these sort of pseudo-paranormal research efforts, the attempts to get into Slothrop's dreams and see what makes him tick. I wanted to kind of put this in context of some of the real government-sponsored mind control and psychological torture efforts that have occurred during the Second World War and after the Second World War and which were almost certainly on Thomas Pynchon's mind when he was writing Gravity's Rainbow. So I spoke to a journalist, an author, by the name of Stephen Kinzer. Kinzer's a former New York Times correspondent who's written a number of books, uh, but key for our purposes is his 2019 book, Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. Poisoner in Chief is a great biography of Sidney Gottlieb, who is the man who headed up the MKUltra program, which used drugs- specifically or chiefly LSD, to try to unlock the secrets for mind control. I talked to Kinzer about his book, about Gottlieb, about MKUltra, and about the kind of supernatural or almost mystical dimension of government efforts to control the minds of subjects, both willing and not, both domestic and foreign. One thing, if my audio sounds kind of screwy in it, it's because I had to re-record my questions because my audio screwed up. So I apologize about that. I'm being transparent, and I hope you find these little hiccups charming instead of obnoxious. Okay, enjoy this interview with Stephen Kinzer.
1: It started out this way. At the end of the uh, Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War, the CIA emerged Uh, and was charged with protecting America against the threats that were coming from, essentially, the Soviet Union. Um, And the CIA misinterpreted a couple of events in the world as meaning that the Soviet Union had mastered or was about to master the secret of mind control. This set off huge alarm bells at the CIA and they decided we have to get into this business. We have to figure out how to control people's minds because if you could ever find a way to do that, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. So what were these episodes that the CIA misinterpreted? Uh, One was the trial of Cardinal Monsenti In Hungary, he was the Roman Catholic prelate there. He was arrested by communist authorities. And after several months of imprisonment, he was put on trial, charged with uh, all sorts of crimes, which he admitted to, even though it was obvious he had never committed those crimes. Uh, Now, it later turned out, as uh, we discovered, that he was coerced with the same methods that jailers have been using for centuries, like extended isolation and repeated uh, questioning and physical beatings, but the CIA didn't see it that way. They not only saw that he was saying things that were clearly untrue, but they looked at his eyes and they analyzed the way that he spoke and they felt that he was kind of an automaton and it made them think somebody's controlling this guy and somebody's putting words in his mouth. We got to figure out how to do that. That wasn't true but that's what they presumed. The other piece had to do with our prisoners in the Korean War. A number of these prisoners wrote essays while they were in prison about uh, problems that they saw in the United States, including racism. Some of them confessed to committing war crimes in Korea, including germ warfare, which the United States always insisted and still insists never happened. So the question became, how could these good strapping American boys have done these things? And the idea was they'd been brainwashed somehow. And in fact, one of the theories the CIA came up with was that as these prisoners were being transported across China through uh, the Northern China, the province of Manchuria, they'd been given some kind of a drug or something psychic had happened to them and had been administered to them. That's where we get the phrase the Manchurian candidate. Now, that wasn't true either. But put these things together, and it set off huge alarm bells at the CIA. That's when uh, the CIA, under its director, Alan Dulles, uh, decided it's time for the CIA to launch a concentrated program to find out this eternal secret. How do you control someone else's mind? And the chemical division of the CIA was established with its principal goal uh, uh, to find out the answer to this great enigma. It was named MKUltra because Alan Dulles, the CIA director, truly believed that this was the ultra project. If you could find this out and solve this mystery, nothing else would be necessary for you to take over the world. That's how the whole thing began.
0: Your book paints a pretty colorful. Is colorful the right word? Let's go with colorful. A colorful portrait of Sidney Gottlieb, the man behind MK Ultra. Can you tell me a bit about Gottlieb? I mean, what made him tick? At the one hand, he seems to be this man of science and enlightenment and rationality, but on the other, his quest seems to be informed by an almost mystical or, or supernatural dimension.
1: The director of MK Ultra, Sidney Gottlieb, was on the one hand, the most accomplished torturer of his generation. He had a license to kill and to torture, and he did. On the other hand, he also considered himself a very spiritual person, this is a guy that got up before dawn to milk his goats. Uh, he ate organically, he studied Zen Buddhism, he wrote poetry. Um, he was a real community activist, kind of a proto-hippie. He lived in a what we would now call kind of a solar home. He didn't have running water because he thought that was environmentally unsound. This is back in the 1950s. So he had this bizarre personality divide in which uh, he would spend his days devising ways to torment people in order to find these secrets of mind control because he believed that before you could find a way to implant a new mind into someone's brain, you first had to find a way to destroy the mind that was in there. But by night, he was this kind of uh, compassionate a deep seeker of mystic knowledge. That's the way he thought of himself. Now, I do believe that there's another basis for the idea that mind control is possible. the odd thing is at the end, after years of experimentation, Godley himself concluded there's no such thing as mind control. You can't make a person commit a murder if that person is deeply opposed to murder. So why did they believe it was possible? Part of it had to do with these episodes that had happened abroad. But I think there's another reason. Uh, These guys had all, in the early CIA, had all grown up with uh, a cultural openness to mind control that came from fiction. There are uh, an unlimited number of stories, and novels, and films, uh, that, and nowadays, video games, everything, on the theme of mind control. Think of how many movies there were about how someone drops a pill into somebody's drink and the next thing you know, that person is under his control. Or they take a pocket watch and they uh, swing it in front of you. You become hypnotized and then you're totally under their control. So I think these guys figured that what screenwriters and novelists could imagine, they could make real. That wasn't true, but I think it, these uh, fictional backgrounds laid a fertile ground for them to believe this fantasy. So how exactly did
0: former Nazi chemists and chemical researchers and scientists get brought over to the United States after the Second World War to, to work on programs like Artichoke or Bluebird or MK Ultra?
1: After the Second World War, the United States began hiring some of the key Nazi spies, particularly uh, Reinhard Galen, who had been the chief of all Nazi intelligence in Eastern Europe and uh, Soviet Union. Later on, rocket scientists in America appealed to President Truman to expand this program. If we're taking in ex-Nazi spies, couldn't we also take in ex-Nazi rocket scientists? And then the third step came from the CIA and its predecessors. The idea was we should also hire Nazi chemists. So Gottlieb, when he started out the uh, MKUltra project, with a scientist's mind, asked himself a fundamental question. I'm going off in this new field of research. So whenever you're doing that, one thing you want to do is figure out what kind of research has already been done. What can I build on? Who's out there that knows stuff about this kind of thing? And so when he tried to figure out who knows how to destroy a human mind and a human soul and a human body, who knows how people respond to various kinds of tortures, he came up with an easy answer. It was the Nazi scientists who had conducted those gruesome so-called experiments on human beings in the concentration camps. And also their Japanese counterparts who in some cases had conducted experiments even more gruesome than what had gone on in the concentration camps. So Gottlieb went out and hired these people. These Nazi doctors and chemists and their Japanese counterparts became part of MKUltra. I, while I was researching my Poisoner-in-Chief book, went to Germany and found what I think is the first CIA secret prison. The guy who owns that building, it's a beautiful chalet, looks like it could be a nice b and uh, took me down into the basement, he, and he showed me his storage rooms. He said, these were the cells where the CIA doctors and their Nazi partners carried out experiments that were essentially just continuations of the experiments that the Nazis had carried out in the concentration camps only a few years earlier, just down the road from here. So there was almost a seamless transition from uh, these uh, medical experiments, as they were called, uh, many of them fatal, on concentration camp inmates, and the MK Ultra experiments.
0: Now, obviously, MKUltra is almost uniquely associated with LSD. LSD was the drug that was being used to demolish consciousness, but your book outlines some other drugs that were used in this same pursuit. Can you give me a bit of background on other compounds that Gottlieb or
1: his predecessors were investigating? Sidney Gottlieb was an accomplished chemist. He probably knew more about poison than any human being alive at his time. And that was essentially his job at the CIA. He was also the poison maker. Whenever we needed a poison to kill Fidel Castro or somebody else or give a suicide pill, for example, to a foreign agent, it was Gottlieb who compounded it. So he was an active collector of toxins from all over the world. Uh, He extracted toxins from Alaskan butter clams. He was getting the... uh, inner organs of crocodiles and sending people to Southeast Asia and Latin America to find barks and herbs that would have poison or mind altering qualities. In addition, he was fascinated with the idea of uh, sedatives and amphetamines. So for example, he carried out one set of experiments in which a person would be given overdoses of sedatives. So they would fall into a deep coma. Then they would be injected with overdoses of amphetamines, which would make them hyperactive. And then when they were in the transition phase between coma and hyperactivity, always locked inside a coffin or some kind of sensory deprivation device, he would then administer electroshock to see if all this combination together uh, could destroy a human mind. And every time he found out that it worked, he would go further. If it didn't work, he would just get some more bodies and try another combination of drugs. So he was always experimenting. He he was really like the classic mad scientist in, in a way that he was looking for new compounds of any kind of drug that could destroy a human mind and a human soul and a human body.
0: One of the big takeaways with MKUltra, at least for me, is, you know, not only was the program deadly and so extensive and secretive, but it was also useless. I mean, can you tell me a bit about the results of the program? Were they ever able to create a Manchurian candidate? Were they ever able
1: to control people's minds? One of the astonishing aspects of MKUltra is that after years of torturing people, and in some cases, torturing them to death. Gottlieb came to the conclusion that actually the whole search had been in vain. That just because you can control people's minds in movies doesn't mean you can do it in real life. And uh, at the end of the 50s and beginning of the 60s, he allowed MKUltra to fade away with the blessing of CIA leadership at the time. So in the end, it was something like, uh, oh, never mind. All of that didn't produce anything. And even Gottlieb himself in the end came to conclude what perhaps a cooler, more rational mind would have been able to conclude at the beginning, which is that there is no such thing as mind control, at least not with any techniques that were available in Gottlieb's era. Now, can
0: you give me a sense of how exactly LSD made it out of the lab? How did it go from these secretive government experiments to totally saturating the counterculture in the
1: 1960s? Sidney Gottlieb, the director of MK Ultra, was fascinated with LSD. It had such potent effects in such small amounts. It was colorless, odorless, tasteless. Uh, he himself, by his own account, used LSD more than 200 times. And he administered it during his MK Ultra years in two different ways. One was coercive experiments with massive overdoses. I found a case in which seven African-American inmates at the federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky, were segregated and given what were described as triple and quadruple doses of LSD every day for 77 days. Now, the end result, the protocol from that experiment has been destroyed, so we don't know what happened. But if the question is, does a person's mind become destroyed by 77 days of massive overdoses of LSD, I'm gonna guess yes. And we don't know what happened to those people. I've often wondered, did they ever know what was given to them, what happened to them? We have no way of knowing that. So these were gruesome experiments in which LSD was used in a horrific way. But Gottlieb was also interested in how ordinary people would react to LSD in a normal clinical setting when they knew exactly what they were being given. Since the CIA does not have clinical settings, uh, Gottlieb established a couple of bogus medical foundations, and these foundations wrote to hospitals and clinics all over the United States and told them, we want to test this new psychoactive drug, LSD. We will send you a drug. You will advertise in the newspapers to have volunteers come in. You can pay them with money we will supply. Uh, and you'll tell them exactly what it is that they're getting. And uh, you just send us in the reports of how people react. So at this point, Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. Uh, And that was brought over from the Sandoz Chemical Company in Switzerland and Gottlieb, through these medical foundations, spread it out to various hospitals and clinics uh, around the United States. Uh, A whole new field of research suddenly grew up because you were making money off this as as a hospital or clinic. So who were some of the first people who noticed that ad and decided, wow, new psychoactive drug? I think I'd like to try that. One of the first was the poet Allen Ginsberg, who listened to uh, Tristan and Isolde on his headphones while he was taking his first LSD trip. Uh, Another one was Robert Hunter, the uh, lyricist for the Grateful Dead. He loved LSD and he brought it home to the rest of the Grateful Dead and all of their camp followers, just as Allen Ginsberg became a kind of a high priest and and promoter of LSD. Um, Another one was Ken Kesey, who went on to write that counterculture Bible, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In fact, when I was reading about him, I found an an interview in which he said, uh, I did gather all the information for that book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, while working in a psychiatric hospital. But that's not what I had in mind when I took the job. I took the job for a different reason. That was the hospital where I got my LSD and I wanted to work there so I could steal the LSD out of the pharmacy and give it to all my friends. So through channels like these, LSD leaked out of the laboratory into the counterculture where it became, as we all know, a major factor of life in that uh, subculture during the 1960s. The irony of course is that the drug Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA hoped would give them the power to control the world, wound up instead fueling a youth movement that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stands for. And this leads down a kind of interesting path. I mean,
0: you talk to some people who might say that LSD was actually disseminated into the counterculture by the CIA, by the FBI, by government organizations precisely to sow some sort of chaos, to make it so the hippies only cared about, you know, listening to long jammy guitar songs and having sex and didn't care about Black Power or the war in Vietnam or labor organization. Do you give any credence
1: to this idea that LSD was an op? I don't think I'd give the CIA that much credit. Uh, and as you know, uh, President Nixon and other American leaders uh, thought of LSD as the, the demon's work. Uh I think that uh, the use of LSD at that time was not connected to the CIA in people's minds. The people that I mentioned like Allen Ginsberg and uh, Ken Kesey who took LSD in early years had no idea where it came from. And indeed, neither did the hospitals. They thought it was some independent medical foundation. Now, in the research for Poisoner-in-Chief, I came across an interview with John Lennon. He was asked about LSD. And he said, we must always remember to thank the CIA. Now, he was right. But if he knew more, he would have said, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. Nobody had ever heard of Gottlieb, but he was the source of all of that. And uh, in some ways, the real LSD guru in American history, even though he was an unknown figure at that time. Wow, yeah, he was kind of the
0: original LSD wholesaler before even someone like Owsley Stanley. Now, I want to kind of get back to this cognitive dissonance question that we kind of talked about with Gottlieb. And I guess I want to talk about my own cognitive dissonance. I mean, when I read about this program and the extent of it, I have a hard time making sense of it, you know? I guess my question is, why is this not a bigger deal? Like, how did the revelations around MK Ultra not totally obliterate civilian trust in the government and government agencies? I mean, how do I go to the store to buy milk and peanut butter and bread when I know what the government is capable of doing against its own citizens? And I mean, there were really, as I understand it, nothing in the way of consequences for these people. They just kind of slipped back into civilian life after MK Ultra was exposed. I mean, how are we expected to, to live
1: with this? Once the MKUltra project was ended, it remained secret for a number of years. It wasn't until the mid-1970s that the first uh, hints of it began to emerge. Now, Sidney Gottlieb left the CIA in that period along with Richard Helms, who was the CIA director and had been kind of his rabbi, his mentor, his overseer during all those years when MKUltra was active. As they were leaving the CIA, they both agreed, we have to destroy all the records from MKUltra. Now that's a federal crime, destroying federal property. Nonetheless, it's a much lesser crime than the crimes that would be revealed if those documents were allowed to uh, remain undestroyed. So they were able to do that. In fact, I found a, a note from a CIA archivist out at their record center saying that these seven crates of documents were destroyed, quote, over my stated objection, but it worked. And I'm painfully aware that in my book, Poisoner in Chief, I've only uncovered a small percentage of what MK Ultra was and what Sidney Gottlieb did. There never were really any other consequences for those involved in it. Uh, I think the reason might be this. Uh, it's seen as part of the Cold War era, the 1950s. Um, and it's considered to be one of those excesses that just happened. And because we thought we needed to do this to protect ourselves, given the emotions at the time and how little we knew, uh, it's uh, something quite acceptable that the CIA would do this. There is a sort of uh, internal feeling, I think, on the part of many Americans that if you're patriotic, you know that some of our agencies that are clandestine, have to do things that are very unpleasant and uh, we kind of shrug our shoulders. Also, bear in mind that by the time the program was made public, uh, 20 years had passed since it was active. So uh, the intensity of it faded. And even now, I don't think we're really aware of the intensity of it. And even though I've tried to reveal as much of it as I could, I know there's so much more that we will probably never know.
2: Well, thanks to Stephen Kinzer for talking to us about MKUltra and Sydney
0: Gottlieb and how the Cold War broke everyone's brains. Including mine. I didn't even live through it. and <laughs> My brain's been destroyed. And Asher, here's a word of advice. If a okay. kindly old man mm-hmm. in a lab coat uh, ever tries to lure you into a house in San Francisco with free liquor and women, Uh-huh. Say no. Mm, I don't know. It sounds like it might be worth it. That's true. I guess if you know what you're getting into and you want to like have your brain broken on LSD and uh, know that a bunch of weird men are watching you try the Kama Sutra or whatever, <laughs> mm-hmm. then it's good to be tortured by the CIA.
2: Yeah. Anyway, if you want to know more, check out Steven's book, Poisoner in Chief. Next episode, we'll continue with Gravity's Rainbow Part 1, this time covering chapters 14 through 17.
0: And we'll have a very fun and wide-ranging chat with literary critic and literary gadabout. What the hell is a gadabout? You only ever hear about it as it pertains to books.
2: I have no idea. I know what a gadfly is.
0: Is gadabout the same thing? You never hear of like a sports gadabout. Mm, uh, I the guess the politics. Anyway, Alex Shepard from the New Republic. We're going to talk to him about literary scandals that dogged Gravity's Rainbow and a little bit about its author's elusive, mysterious status in the world of arts mm-hmm. and letters. So, Well, not that mysterious because he is in our green room right now. He is in the green room. And apologies again to Thomas Pynchon. story. We cannot interview you this episode. We promise to get you on next time. So mm-hmm. make sure you guys tune into that. Yeah. And sorry, Tom. Like and subscribe. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Slow Learners is written and produced by Asher Dark and John Semley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asher Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by reina Doris. Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitiesrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you.